Welcome to Great Minds with Michael Medved, a production of the Discovery Institute. On this episode... In his first inaugural address, President Washington, when he becomes president, talks about the invisible hand. What Washington meant was nothing having to do with the economy. It was the hand of providence. He talked about tokens of providence at every step in our progression towards independence. Exactly. And what's so stunning to me is I, I wondered when I was writing this book, when did we stop believing that? Yeah. And the truth is, we didn't. Kennedy wrote about this. Mm-hmm. Franklin Roosevelt invoked... To his D-Day speech. I know. Yeah. And he talks about we're fighting for Christian civilization. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. And this is Franklin Roosevelt, liberal hero. That and more on this episode of Great Minds with Michael Medved. Here's Michael. Welcome to Great Minds with Michael Medved. You can uh, go online and find us there, mindswithmedved.com, where you can subscribe and also get instant notification of further editions of our of our podcasts. You'll have noticed already that I'm not Michael Medved. And I'm here. I don't have a show with 5 million listeners a week, but um, I have been uh, blessed on a couple of occasions to be on Michael's show where he has interviewed me about my books. And uh, in a kind of a turnabout, I'm going to get to interview Michael today about his recent book about American history, uh, The American Miracle, the role of providence in the rise of the republic. Michael, I've actually just finished the book, and I, have, I, I would have to say it has been deeply affecting. Okay. It's beautifully written. Um, it's um, meticulously researched. You're sto- you are a master storyteller. And the, the, uh, the thing that really affected me was the, the theme that you subtly wove through the book, and the way in which you developed an argument for the providential involvement of uh, God in the history of the United States. Um, there was just an element of, it, you nuanced your case very beautifully, but I started to see it the more I read. And uh, it, it's, it, it's had a big effect on me. I, I thought it might be helpful to our, our listeners if you would explain the basic thesis of the book and, and the, the method by which you discern a providential element in American history. Well, well, sure, because um, I, I, not to be too much falling over each other with mutual compliments, <laughs> but I, uh, my arguments in uh, The American Miracle were profoundly influenced by your work because what your work is about is that if you look at the universe, it is much more rational using Occam's razor. It's much easier to say that it was designed than to say that it happened by random evolution. I mean, it didn't just happen and, uh, gee, these were a whole series of coincidences. My big argument in the book is the argument that it is much easier to explain America through intelligent design, which, by the way, all our founders believe. Mm-hmm. I mean, including the ones who were religious skeptics. They believe that, that there was a higher power, a creator, a fate, a destiny, a god, who was directing the emergence of this country. It's much easier to explain America through intelligent design than through random evolution. And one of the themes that I'm, I'm afraid I, I kind of hit several times in the course of, of the book is that a pattern of happy accidents mm-hmm. is still a pattern. Right. Because happy accidents, well, yeah, okay, some happy accidents, some horrible accidents. We've had horrible accidents in American history. We've had things where it seemed like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? However, on what mattered most, uh, our entire emergence 
as the dominant civilization on planet Earth has been so unlikely that it, it calls to mind uh, exactly what our founders believed, which was the hand of God on the rise of this country. You use an example of uh, uh, a hand of cards, a straight flush. That struck me because there's an origin of life scientist named Christian Dudu, who used a Nobel Prize winner, who used the same illustration. He said, if you draw a straight flush once, well, that might be luck. But if you do it again and again and again, your fellow card players are going to be suspicious that something else is going on, in particular you're cheating, which is a form of design. I, I, I actually came up with, with that based upon a paper that I found that deserves more attention by a mathematician who was looking at the unlikelihood of July 4th, 1826, which is the very first chapter of the mm-hmm. book, and then we go back to the right, pilgrims. Right. And, but July 4th, 1826, I mean, consider the odds. First of all, only two presidents have ever died on the same day. And those two were the two people most involved with uh, the Declaration of Independence. John Adams, who fought for it in the Continental Congress, and Thomas Jefferson, who wrote it. They died on the same day. Okay, big coincidence. Second big coincidence. They died on July 4th. Only three presidents have ever died on July 4th. Uh, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Monroe, who died five years later on July 4th. Nobody else. Okay, then put on top of that the fact that they were even alive for the 50th anniversary of July 4th, their great jubilee. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is the passage in the Bible where it says proclaim a jubilee year, what we say in Hebrew is a yovel year, is precisely the passage which shortly after uh, that, that period of time they inscribed on the Liberty Bell. In other words, before these two people died on our Jubilee of July 4th, the 50th anniversary, the entire thing was so striking to people who were alive at that time uh, that even Daniel Webster, who, again, was not conventionally that religious, gave this famous funeral oration, which I quote, as, which is very deeply moving. And by the way, kids used to know it. Yeah. It used to be a, a, a Webster's uh, elegy for for Jefferson and Adams. Used to be well-known. It was a bestseller when it was published yeah. in pamphlet form. But in any event, he delivered it at Faneuil Hall in Boston and made the same point that this in and of itself could not be explained with rational terms. I believe it would be a, the equivalent of drawing a straight flush in poker about 40 times in a row. Well, let's talk about a couple more examples of this. Some that were really actually crucial to the... Um, the survival of the American project. The, 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 you, you have a chapter about the first two battles in the Revolutionary War and the role that seeming happenstance played in, in, the, in weather and how, uh, apart from a series of extraordinary coincidences, there would have been no, no revolution at all. The, the Revolutionary War would have been nipped, the revolutionary effort would have been nipped in the bud. I'm thinking first of the, the, the battle in Boston where the British were holed up in Boston Harbor and then the colonials were on Dorchester Heights. Heights. Yeah, yeah and, and it w- what's incredible about that, it, it wasn't even a battle because Washington really wasn't in a position to win a battle. I mean, he, he, his, his men had just come together. It was a ragtag army. But what he did was, first of all, this, this brilliant maneuver of sending Henry Knox up to Fort Ticonderoga to take this undefended British fort 
because they had guns there. And then the great difficulty in the heart of winter, and it was deep winter, it was January, it was February, they had to bring the guns down from Canada, which is where where they had gone up to. They had to wait up to the state of New York, to Fort Con- Ticonderoga, practically to Canada, to take these guns and then, you'll pardon the expression, schlep them down <laughs> to Boston. But then you have these guns. What are you going to do with them? Washington had the insight, we have to go up to um, Dorchester Heights, which overlooked the city, so we could then shell the British in Boston and, and get rid of them and persuade them to leave. They were occupying the city. Washington was outside. The problem is that as soon as General Howe, who has ships in the harbor, who has his own guns, who has a formidable army in Boston, as soon as he sees a bunch of guys coming up the hill to put these guns in place, he's going to stop it. He's going to move immediately. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Washington determined to do it at night. And the difficulty is that it's March, Right. Boston, you ever been to Boston in March? It's cold. (laughs) It's cold. It's frozen. And by the way, what they had to do is bring the guns up and then dig into the ground. And the ground is like frozen solid. Yeah. And and dig into the ground and then do breastworks around the guns. Otherwise, the British are going to come up and rush the guns and take them. So they prayed. And again, people at the time couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, March 2nd, they have this balmy weather yeah. and they're able to go up and dig. And, and basically a British observer said that we looked uh, up on the hills and all of a sudden there were these guns frowning down on us. And the, he said it was as if Aladdin's magical yeah. lamp had conjured them because the Americans had gotten up and been able to end because the weather was balmy enough. Now, then how the British general was going to get his men together to storm up the hill. He was very reluctant to do that because he had tried this before, the Battle of Bunker Hill, and and it it didn't work for him, charging up a hill to the Americans in place. But he was getting ready to do that, and then there was a sign, which was a sudden storm came up. There were winds that was howling. Breaking uh, windows in the town. Correct, yes, it was was a terror. And and, uh, he said, okay, weather is spoken. They left town. They, they departed, the British departed from Boston. It was what cemented the faith in Washington's leadership mm-hmm. and also the belief that God is in this for us. Now, the other example is, is even more mind-blowing. It really is. This really struck me because it was a sequence of very specific changes in weather. Yes, that, meteorological and, and, events. So they, so they leave Boston. The British, they negotiate a leave, but then they go to New York thinking that they, they can break the back of the revolution by taking New York. Correct. And well, so what happens at the, Long Island? The, 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 the Americans are in New York. Washington has marched down from Boston to uh, try to protect New York from a British invasion because Howe all of a sudden has gotten all kinds of reinforcements mm-hmm. from Britain and a, a major fleet, and they're coming down. Major and, hundreds of ships now he's got. Correct. It was, it was the biggest yeah. British um, expeditionary overseas force ever up to that time. And the they colonials have no, n- no Navy to speak of at all. But at the, yeah. No, no, yeah. none. I mean, nothing. They, had a, they didn't have any yeah. organized Navy yeah. at all. They were barely organized in an army. In any event, they fight the biggest battle of the revolution. It's the Battle of Brooklyn. And yes, it was in real Brooklyn. This was not a, a, a game between the Yankees and the Dodgers, yeah. Or yeah. The, between the Dodgers and the Giants. This is um, the, the real deal. And by the way, it was the biggest 
battle of the revolution in terms of the number of troops that were mm -hmm. engaged. It's August 1776. They have just declared independence. And uh, the British are very determined to put an end to this because so the fate of the declaration problem. depends on this now completely yeah yeah i mean one thing to declare it's another thing to back the words up correct and they were determined later they said that 1777 if you look at the three sevens they are look like gallows 1777 is going to be the year of the hangman because that's the point at which we will have arrested all these people tried them for treason mm -hmm. and dispatched them so the whole revolution depends on this. And the Battle of Brooklyn was a disaster. Uh, and first of all, the entire thing was heralded by this lightning storm. And there were Continental Army troops who were struck by lightning. It was almost as if there were some kind of warning. <laughs> no, things are going to be really, really very bad. And, and they were. They, they lost the battle horribly. Two of the major American generals were captured. And Washington's little army, which is battered, basically runs away and goes to Brooklyn Heights and they're trapped. On, the, on the west end of, of Long Island. Correct. Yeah. Exactly yeah. right. They're trapped so they on the west end. The East River behind them. The East the River behind them. And the East no River Navy. behind them has a gigantic series of British ships, and two, including yeah. two major men of war. Yeah. E either of which with have- With the big guns. With big guns on them. They have multiple guns. I think they had a total of 32 guns on each ship yeah. uh, that are ready to- blast the Americans to smithereens, and they're completely surrounded by a much larger army, about twice as large, about 20,000 mm -hmm. men. There are about 9,000 Americans who are left after the ones who ran away or yeah. were killed or were wounded in the, in the battle. There, there's no nowhere to go, nothing to do, and Washington has the idea that they're going to make it a, a desperate attempt in August to cross the East River on little boats going back and forth. And so back this is the forth. American Dunkirk. Correct. Yeah. And except it's it's much worse than Dunkirk because in, in, in for Dunkirk, they did not have uh, uh, German ships who were mm -hmm. <laughs> in the middle of the English yeah, Channel. Right. Here, the, the entire East River is dominated by the British Navy. Yeah. It's the best Navy in the world. And all of a sudden, the weather. There is a completely unseasonable fog. And and. People who are alive, and including British eyewitnesses, mm -hmm. this is not just Americans' yeah, yeah. wishful thinking, said it was almost biblical. It says in the mm -hmm. Bible that when there was a plague of uh, uh, darkness, it was a darkness you could feel. There's this fog that comes down, so you could not see your own hand in front of your face. Mm -hmm. And no one had seen anything like it before, certainly not in August, because August is pretty Summer. hot weather yeah, in, yeah. in New York City. And the, the fog is on the island, right? Correct. Yeah. Well, the fog is the fog Ever. is on the river. Okay. And it's really on the river. Uh, the Americans very quietly, and by the way, they almost got exposed because there was uh, almost a, uh, there was a Tory, a, a, a lady, lady who was trying yeah, to heard, send yeah. a message to warn General Howe. So the Americans are evacuating. They're evacuating. So they're rowing back and forth. It's, it's Colonel John Glover and his Marblehead Regiment who uh, were the same people who uh, later helped row Washington across the Delaware. They were good boatmen. And they're rowing quietly, rowing quietly. And they are literally within, I mean, in a movie, you would see that, that the British ships are right there. Mm -hmm. And they get across, and uh, there's a 19-year-old um, officer who, who sees... Washington is the last one to get into the boat. He's watching from the other shore. 
and leaving and all the men get across. And the moment that Washington arrives on the Manhattan shore, the fog clears. Fog fog lifts. And and again, this is, the British were very frustrated by Mm -hmm. this whole thing because the the fox slip away. Yeah, they got bitten by the bad weather twice. Yeah, but but it was was ridiculous because, again, there are questions about why Howe hesitated because he waited two days and waited for the perfect moment for the fog to come up. And uh, th- this was... But the winds were also unfavorable to the British ships, weren't they? Correct. Up. So you had a, Correct. a combination of weather factors, unseasonable both, right. that were just the right thing spe- specific to the needs of the, of the American evacuation. Which persuaded, again, even religious skeptics that um, uh, Jefferson actually said, uh, do you not see that there is an angel in the whirlwind? that contends for us. And uh, the entire thing is so extraordinary is it helped to feed that idea Mm -hmm. that this is no accident. And and by the way, in his first inaugural address, President Washington, when he becomes president, talks about the invisible hand that has sustained us. And it's not Adam Smith. By the way, there's another big coincidence. 1776, Declaration of Independence, Adam Smith writes Wealth of Nations Mm -hmm. and talks about the invisible hand. But what Jefferson, what Washington meant was nothing having to do with the economy. It was the hand of providence. He talked about tokens of providence at every step in our progression towards independence. Exactly. Yeah. And what's so stunning to me is I, I wondered when I was writing this book, yeah. when did we stop believing that? Yeah. And the truth is we didn't. Kennedy wrote about this. Mm-hmm. Franklin Roosevelt invoked his World War II, his D-Day speech. I know. Yeah, yeah. It's deeply, and he talks about we're fighting for Christian civilization. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. And this is Franklin Roosevelt, liberal hero. Look, it's it's one of those things where I, I honestly believe that part of the anti-Americanism that we have in the world today is because we've lost this perspective. Mm-hmm. The rise of the United States is so unanticipated, Nom- anomalous. so yeah. bizarre. Yeah. Right. If you don't seize on this traditional explanation mm-hmm. that there was a higher power that demanded and commanded this, then you are left to believe, oh, the Americans are guilty, guilty, guilty. It's either going to be guilt or gratitude. Yeah. And gratitude is both more accurate and uh, it serves us much better. And it fits beautifully in with a kind of design hypothesis for history because you do have what we call a small probability specification. The specification is the pattern and all these improbable events that conform to this pattern, which is in a sense a, a, a fortuitous functional outcome for the advance of, of freedom and flourishing the, the American project. And by the way, a lot of people say, do you believe that if America is exceptional, if America is willed by providence, does that give us special privileges? No, no. It gives us special, special responsibilities, responsibilities. Yeah. Which, which again is the whole idea of grace, yeah. which we talk about. Not necessarily that it's earned, but it's conferred mm-hmm. with purpose. Excellent. Great place to, to stop for first session on this, but we'll continue. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, we uh, invite you again to go to mindswithmedved.com. If you feel led, you can offer a donation to keep this kind of programming going. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Great Minds with Michael Medved, available at mindswithmedved.com. Great Minds with Michael Medved is produced by Jeremy Steiner and Greg Tomlin. 
and is copyrighted by Discovery Institute 2018. There are lots of Israel tours for you to choose from, but the Medved Discovery Tour coming up is very special. Here's the deal. There are a lot of tours that take you to the Holy Land, but they don't show you the modern state of Israel, and others that show you the modern state of Israel, but don't really show you the Holy Land. This is a tour in the Discovery Institute tradition that I will lead personally, I'm Michael Medved, that will emphasize science, cutting-edge technology, and traditional faith. Join us in September of 2019. Find out all about it at discovery.org.